Welcome back to Arts About. Show about art that's a work of art in itself. Hello, Sally. Hello, John. Welcome back. Thank you. And hello to you too, Mark. Hello, Sally. Hello, John. Mark. Arts About is brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery and you're here in the Artable Peace Studios with us, artist-in-residence and cultural sounding board John Baird, the thermodynamic Mark Stewart and me, as ever, tirelessly Sally Bailey. What are you going to be on about this week, John? I'm going to, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, revisit my extraordinary childhood. Ah, we love those stories. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Mark, what about you this week? <coughs> You've got a lot of newspapers there this week. Uh, yes, no, I'm going to talk about Modest Petrovich Mussorgsky. Oh. He was uh, a great... Was that uh, his first name, Modest? Modest. Gosh. Yes. Lovely. Is that Italian? Uh, no, but I think very... Oh, he's uh, Russian, isn't he? Well, he's Russian, but they were very inf much influenced by French culture, so I'd right. say it's come from France. And does the word, does the name Modest come from the word Modest? Which yes. Which we similar yeah, associations, like grace, humble or... Grace, yes, the same. Yes. Grass, it's a lovely name. Yes, okay. Uh, this week, we've, uh, Lindy Ford and David Bryson are coming onto the program. Uh, the two of them have collaborated on a book called Travel Lines that's a collection of David's poetry and Lindy's imagery. And we're also going to be talking with Chris Gerber, who is the director of the Environmental Film Festival, and he's going to be telling us about this year's festival, which uh, continues their tradition of presenting films tra uh, traversing the relationship between humans and their environments. And uh, they've also got a, this year, they've got a special community storytelling project that they've added to their uh, program, which sees grassroots environmental groups creating their own short films using smartphones. So that sounds pretty exciting. So let's get on. And while we prepare, here are the doors with uh, Peace Frog, uh, a lovely little track and um, takes back to our... It's up to contention whether Jim Morrison's a poet or not, but I think we have a real poet here with us uh, called David Bryson. Um, his book, which he has made with Lindy Ford, who's a painter or visual artist. Are you a painter? Lindy? Painter, no. Painter, yes. Um, I just want to read quickly one of uh, David's poems, which is called Risk, in memoriam of CP. This is Risk. That's the poem. That's the poem. Would you like to read it again? Yes. Risk, in memoriam of CP. This is Risk. I love it. And the image is, is it a, a painting or a photograph of the, it's stone, looks like water, a well. That's the, that's a photograph of the underground well in Ortesia, the Judaic baths, mm. which go right back several centuries. I can't be exactly precise, but I just like the idea of the risk that the people had through history. And CP is? Well, this is a, someone I went to school with, Mark, and uh, apparently he was a brilliant English student, uh, perhaps not mention his name, but he was absolutely brilliant. And apparently at his final exam for his matriculation or A-levels, uh, he wrote an essay which was on risk, and he wrote, this is risk, and left it at that. And there was pandemonium, of course, because everyone knew he was a brilliant student, but he, <laughs> he had to get through with a bit of help from people who knew that he was that risky. Uh, so it's, um, I, I mention him because it's yeah. really his words, but it's a, a risk to make the book and it's a risk to make poetry. David Bryson and Lindy Ford have created a book exploring trace lines. It's a collaboration between two artists with very different mediums and their book explores glimpses of family connections, the work and memory through a combination of word and image. Uh, we have them in the studio with us today, poet David Bryson and visual artist Lindy Ford. What are uh, trace lines, David? Well, we called it trace lines um, in a kind of play on words, really. Uh, it's a 
combination of my poems and Lindy's art, and we found that they seem to work very well together. And the play on words is obviously lines of poetry and, if you like, a tracing of the images and paintings to those lines. So that was the order of things. We had the poems before we put the pictures to it. But in many books of poetry, it's just poetry. Mm. And we felt that there was an opportunity here to bring both Lindy's gifts as an artist and mine as a poet together. And we were really pleased with the way it's turned out. They're very beautiful images. A lot of them look as if they are photographs of tiny, tiny details. I mean, there's certainly a lot of artwork of your painting in there as well, but I looked at a couple of them. In fact, actually, as I travelled through Europe a few years ago with my children and my husband, my, my husband was forever lagging behind, and I'd go back and find him lying on the ground in the in the gutter or staring at a tiny piece of wall and taking images much as you have done. When I showed him your book, he loved them. They're beautiful, beautiful almost indeterminate images. It's hard to tell what they are. Lindy, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. I think you've nailed a lot of points in that description, Sally. Initially how I came to do this work of um, photographing marks or trace lines, um, I did used to photograph in community, in the Ethiopian community, and docu- a lot of documentary work in Melbourne. And then one day I was, <clears throat> excuse me, was standing in an artist's studio and just looked around and suddenly saw all these marks and scratchings and I was intrigued and fascinated. So it wasn't so much the art that the artist was producing, it was all the ephemeral marks on the walls. And so I thought, well, what if I focused on the marks on the walls, on the floor, and let's see what happens through the lens and then transferred onto paper. So that's how it started. So I was focusing on artist studios, and then I started noticing marks on the road, road markings, doorways, um, concrete floors, you know, ephemeral. And I was sort of fascinated by the fact that the mark was here today and gone tomorrow. And again, that references the book title. And so I just kept it going. And very much like your partner, you know, I'm, I'm not easy to travel with sometimes because I'm, you know, I'm down laneways. I'm just, you know, hang on a minute. You know, I just need I to just get see this. the great just, spot on yeah, a rock. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. And then what I love about the images is that um, what I think is not what the other, the viewer will think. So it's sort of like creating a conversation between the artwork, the viewer, and myself as the artist. Mm. Um, I'm interested to know, Mark, how your reaction, because Mark's a visual artist and mm. a poet also, that you, you've only had a little time to look at the book. How... how do you, how do you find uh, that? What, the, the images and the words? Yes, the images and the words. Is it I something think it's that... a very difficult thing to do mm. well. I think they've done, they have done it well. I think it works extremely well because it's, a, as you said, the, the close-up to, the, to, the, to what she's, Linda is seeing is somehow um, in relation to the words, this is, which I wanted to know. Were the poems written after the images? They were. No, the words, no, they weren't. words were first. Really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and in some ways we're both looking at incidental or coincidental art. Uh, without the written word, the thought or the idea is never expressed and never read. Mm. In the same way Lindy's capturing of what we pass every day in our walking and our driving is uh, also a beautiful way to 
capture things, but no, the poets, the poetry came first. Right, because it's, it's, it's for instance, writing uh, program music is a very difficult thing to do. It's a, it, it is, you know, words are perhaps the m- more abstract than what an image is. Mm. Even though they are abstract images, mm. you can still pinpoint what ex- what is exactly going on. There just seems to be a wonderful combination between two of them going on. They're very, well, well, I think bit we of osmosis. That, weren't we, Lindy, that we put Perhaps you describe how we got the pictures connected to the words. Well, it was a matter of just going back to the file, you know, my files, printing off a number of images, laying them out on the floor, you know, A4 paper, just out of the printer, laying them on the floor in grids of 12, and then just going, what if we put that image with this poem? And then what we found was that the, the two, the, the image and and the poem then spoke to each other, and Mm. it was like a relationship. We found that, they sort of needed each other and to, to have that conversation together. And what was interesting was that we made very few changes from that initial, what if we put this image with that poem? And it just seemed to work. I think we only made about two changes from wow. that first I, I cull. I can't think of the poems now without thinking of the image. And it's probably the other way around. We had a person who read it recently and said, look, I've been rereading the book and dipping into it. And it's been wonderful. And it's the images now. First time it was the words that I was impressed with, but now it's the image, and I can see the connection between the image and the word. So it probably doesn't matter which came first in that case, Mark. Yeah. No. Well, for example, the Greek in a Greek temple, the image is very, very blue and white and a bit of orange. It's, it seems as if it's been put together. Mediterranean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned off-air just a moment ago that you were an anthropologist. Mm. How, has, how have you become a poet um, <laughs> out of that? Or, or ha- are they complementary too? Well, let me try and draw a thread for the purposes of a a story, but I think being the fifth of six children and being an anthropologist, you're walking into a world which is not your own. Uh, Lindy's the first child, I think, so she has some control over that. Um, So I think by nature I'm observing and wondering how and why things work, and particularly when they work differently to how I see them or think they should. So I think that's... If I have a voice, I suspect that's the voice, that it's a little quirky and sees things a little oddly, and it's trying to understand what the hell's going on, you know, with something that can be as simple as risk or as simple as uh, entering a room. Mm. Now, Mark read a little one, one of your very tiny poems. Was that a haiku? Because I had, well, a haiku no, it's a bit smaller than five, a haiku. Yeah, it's more yes. five lines. So, 17 syllables. 17 syllables, <laughs> that's right. rearranged, often three lines or five lines, but 17 okay. syllables, so it often goes... In that order. Whereas the risk would be. The risk is just, just a, short a little poem. Short poem <laughs> taking yeah. a risk in itself as a poem and taking a risk in producing the book. Mm. Some of them are sonnets, some of them are villanelles with mm-hmm. a repeat kind of pattern, and there are Hayaku at the end where we put together our travel, I call them travel postcards yeah. of Hayaku, which seem to fit those um, rapid fire insights you get when you're travelling. And what sort of themes can you... In fact, why don't we get you to read one of them? Would you mind? One of the themes is um, around relationship. And this goes at whatever age you are, I think, when you're struggling in those early moments of relationship, trying to impress, trying to be with someone in an intense sort of way. And it can get a little bit odd and what happens. And often you can find yourself very much standing beside yourself while it's going on. So one of these poems is called Orbital. Sometimes when I'm with her, I'm all orbital. Out there, airless, soundlessly spinning Sputnik, like a mad thing propelled by days, so loose from home ground, centrifugal spun out. For want of gravity, I run on the sunspots of her words, conversational, rotational, while Nikes tear to shreds, grazed on metal lacings built to hold my craft internally. 
This is a naysay temporary mission. Out of control mocking Houston, we have sounded echo. Spied through the portal, a nucleic Azure Earth pinpricks away from me. Transmission, I lose reception until finally unmonitored. I test pattern alone from her, waiting for morning tide. Wonderful, wonderful. Other themes are around my family and the death of parents and, and what we're doing to the Earth. And there's some nature poems which... Fit into the book. Magic poems, was that, do you say? Um, a nature poem. Nature <laughs> poems, okay. There's always magic in the poem. <laughs> Have you been to the poetry club yet in Macrae? Have you heard about that? I've yeah. heard about it, but we haven't. No, there's a reading. I'm, I think Lindy's a better des- describer of what happened when we tried to put this book together from a poet's point of view. I'd kept my poetry private all my life, but you had to winkle me out, didn't you, to get it? That was form. that was sort of the creative impulse was when David shared some of his poetry with me and I thought, wow, these poems are really fantastic. You know, why don't we make a book? Because I'd made a few books through my photography practice. And then getting David to actually say, yes, this is a great idea, took about three weeks. And so going from the, oh, my goodness, you know, I can't possibly let go of, you know, share my work with the world, which I think artists in the initial stage sometimes do have those palpable moments and then it becomes more normal if if you like so when I said to David look you know there's a poetry night at McRae we think yes we do know about it mm, and good. We're, we'll get on the list and that'll you know, that no, just turn up. Yes, just turn up and put your name on the list yeah. if, you, if you're doing it. I think it would be fabulous. You have to fight back for... a few other poets. But, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's good to bring your art out into you know, a wider audience, and especially when some of the poetry is Germana-based or Peninsula-based. And so it becomes more relevant. And certainly having now outed yourself in this <laughs> book, it's going to be a lot easier, and this will be the next stage. How wonderful. Is there another project in the, um, in the offing? There is. Uh, David's written a number of haiku which are based around life and dramana and on the pier and the moments that we have, the quirky moments um, with what we see and who we meet. And so we're in the process of putting those uh, those works with some images. And so I'm trying to or working on various images and then we say, wow, what, what if we put this image with that haiku? And then looking at how to present it so that maybe it's not in a um, conventional book form that we might produce it in on different paper, different format, and then produce it as a limited edition and then promote it mm. on the peninsula. That's a great idea. Mm. Now, how do people get a copy of your book now? It's in a number of bookshops, mm-hmm. uh, locally here on the peninsula. It's in Antipodes, in Sorrento, uh, Farrell's in Mornington. Um, in the city, it's in the Avenue, Albert Park. Um, bookshop and North Melbourne Bookshop. Brilliant. All right. Well, I will, of course, put a link to Lindy, your website, on our Facebook page, and uh, I'll put a couple of images also on the Facebook page too. That's wonderful. Uh, it's really great to talk to you. Thank you for coming in and, uh, and introducing us to this beautiful book. I'm sure we'll hear more from you in the future, and I look forward to seeing you at the Poets' Corner in Macrae at some time soon. Thank you so much, David Bryson and Lindy Ford. Thanks, Thanks Sally. Thanks, Thank, thank Thanks, you, David. Thank you, Chris Gerber is the director of the Environmental Film Festival opening at the ACMI and the Westgarth Theatre on the 11th of October.
set up to inspire people to consider the natural world and our relationship to it. The festival began in 2010 to challenge, entertain and encourage action on important environmental issues and has expanded over its past seven years to spread the power of environmental films to more people across more cities. With Bob Brown as one of their patrons, the festival features films coming from the world's most talented and socially conscious filmmakers, delivering information, inspiration and hopefully a sense of hope for the future from filmmakers across the globe, as well as 30% local talent. To tell us more, Festival Director Chris Gerber joins us this morning. Good morning, Chris. Welcome to Arts About. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, great to talk to you today. Uh, Chris, um, uh Fueling conversation around important ideas, it's such a great concept. How did it come about? Yeah, so uh, this year is our ninth festival, actually. So oh, okay. There's a couple behind, sorry about that. <laughs> well, it's just, um, yeah, our kind of founding directors uh, were, you know, passionate environmentalists um, and academics and were really inspired by what they'd seen um, with some other uh great international environmental festivals around the world. And basically, yeah, in 2010, they got a group together and decided, you know, these are the types of films that we want to bring to Melbourne and Australian audiences. So they set about the process of setting up the Environmental Film Festival. And here we are today. How does that process work? Do you do you register yourself internationally as a, a film festival that is looking for films along these lines, or do you actively go out, you know, finding people? Yeah, there's no um, auspicing body, I suppose, of, of film festivals, so it's open for one and all, but there are some, you know, really important processes around um, the approach that we take and how we reach out to filmmakers and content producers to get the films. So, yeah, we we do that every year and we also, you know, look at what other festivals are doing. We're trying to tap into the filmmaker market and where people are screening their films um, in other festivals around the world and invite them to submit to us. So, yeah, we reach really far and wide and we look as um, our programming team, yeah, looks, looks in Australia, like you said. We've got a 30% Australian target um, but we also look around the world to to see well what are the really hot issues that are um, for the environment sector that are being shown on film and how can we bring those to Australia? How can we uh, and then talk about those issues in a in a local context? I suppose uh, it's it is a really fascinating idea uh, to kind of uh, use this platform which is so democratic. So. The, the, the reach is extraordinary, I would imagine, these days for film, and that's where people mostly seem to get or get an awful lot of their information from. It seems like an absolute monty to apply it to um, environmental concerns. Well, yeah, it makes a it makes a lot of sense to use to use film for this um, for this topic. We, you know, we see so there's so many issues and challenges in the environment that that the more that they can be shared with the wider public or shared mm. with concerned citizens, the better. And you know, the art of storytelling through film is incredibly powerful and combining those two things together can lead to really incredible environmental filmmaking. I should say that we don't just play films that focus on distress, distressing issues or challenges that we face in the sector. We also are looking at films that celebrate the environment and 
connect us with the wonder of nature and uh, inspire us with heroes that are doing great work mm. within environment and sustainability space. So it's not all doom and gloom. There's lots That's of great, great <laughs> messages to take from it as well. Well, that is great because really there are some the sheer amount of doom and gloom that is out there in this respect is just devastating, isn't it? Yes, it um, it, it definitely can be. And what we find with some of the films that we, we bring to the festival is that there's also lots of issues that we haven't really thought about or um, kind of discussed within Australia. So that's also a great reason to come along to the festival and hear mm. about I suppose, new, new ideas and, and, and new things. Tell us about your new community storytelling project. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's a great project. That's, um, part, we partner with Bank Australia and a company called Digital Storytellers to deliver, and we put um, some great volunteers from local environmental organisations um, through a uh, digital storytelling work series of workshops around making a film and um, producing the film and then um, delivering it to the audience to share their message, really. So we've got six amazing organisations and two uh, young or three young storytellers this year that have been a part of that program who are producing short uh, little three-minute films about their, about their important environmental work that they can then you know, used for their own purposes to engage their local networks, to reach out to new members. But from a festival point of view, we're really trying to share more important stories about environmental work that's happening locally and how our audiences can get involved as well. So it's a great it's a great project. It's um, we've been running it. Um, this is our second cohort through the project this year, and we're really excited to be able to share the amazing films that they've put together. They're absolutely incredible. Um, from you know, learning the skills a couple of months ago to delivering their films now, which we're, we've had a sneak peek at and we're really excited to share them with our, with our audience. Uh, can, you, can you name a couple of topics or a couple of films that, that are going to be part of the festival? Uh, the festival more broadly? Yeah. It definitely can, yeah. Um, we've got a, a, an amazing film called Arnate's Ark, which features the former president, or president at the time of the filmmaking of, of Kiribati, Kiribati is a Pacific um, island nation series of um, atolls and islands that are deeply affected by climate change and sea level rise. Yeah. And um, Anate Tong uh, was incredibly um, influential during the Paris climate change discussions. And this film follows um, his experience living in Kiribati and being the president and also his role at the Paris uh-huh. Climate Change Conference in 2016. Sorry, I got that wrong. Um, and so, 2016. So, yeah, it's a amazing film about an amazing place and and the people and how you know, culture and environment, um, people and politics kind of come together in this one place. Um, we're really lucky that uh, Anate Tong will be attending the festival and will be in discussion after the film too. So, oh. we'll be able to get first hand perspective from him from. Uh, and, and what's happened since his his uh, presidency ended in, in Kiribati. So that's a great one uh, for the audience. Yeah. 
It sounds like, you know, the whole idea of being able to tell stories this way and uh, link audiences much more intimately with these stories, which it's a very different thing to read about these situations in a newspaper uh, to actually seeing the personalities involved and the incredible things that selfless things often that people are doing to resolve these issues. It's a, it's a real sort of um, empathy ramper, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Um, I think the different perspectives that can be told through film is, is really, really important. Um, and as you were saying that, one of the films that we're playing at the festival that I thought about is a film called When Lambs Become Lions, mm-hmm. which is essentially about the Kenyan ivory trade. It's a, the filmmaker you know, had incredible access to his subjects over over three years of, of making the film. And it actually um, straddles a kind of hybrid documentary um, fiction film using narrative to relay real-life events that have happened to the characters that are in the film. Um, but interestingly, it actually tells of the struggle between... Um, a Kenyan um, environmental um, ranger working to protect you know, elephants there that are that are being um, hunted for the for their ivory, and it also tells the perspective of one of those poachers and mm-hmm. their cousin, mm-hmm. and the different impacts on their lives of being on either side of that issue. And it's you know it's an incredible film, um, you know, delicately handled, but also you know, bringing in these perspectives and you do feel empathy for both characters in a way around the livelihood yeah. and how it takes just, you know, one small act for them can lead to, you know, riches that are very significant for their life. Um, so uh, it's, yeah, it's an amazing film that we're playing called When Lambs Become Lions that, that reaches into those different perspectives that you're talking about. So the festival runs between the uh, 11th and the 19th, so it's a full, it's a full week, um, and it's at two venues. Does it, uh, are the films going to be different at the two venues, or or are you repeating the program in two venues? No, they're different actually. So yeah, from the 11th to the 16th of October, we're at, in at Acme at Federation Square, and then we've got on the 17th, 18th, 19th of October three different films um, that we're playing at Palace. Right. So how many films are you showing in total in the in the program? We're showing 43 films. Mm. So I think it's it's around 18 feature films and then we've got quite a lot of short films as well. So part of our um that that you mentioned part of our commitment is around playing Australian films. So we've got two Australian feature films but also 13 Australian short films. So so many of the of the films that um you know listeners might attend accompanied by short films, often an Australian short film as well, um, which is which is really exciting. And then, yeah, we've got a few short film packages as well. So we're bringing some of the world's best environmental short films into mm-hmm. an um, international short film package, which should be really excellent. And we're also thinking about the environment in new and unique ways and how can we bring a different lens to the, the environment through experimental film. So we've got a collection of experimental short films that we're playing as well which brings the total up to 43 with all those all those short films included too that's a big job you've been obviously working on this all year we have yeah Yeah. it kind of comes around again but it's it's always exciting to have such great 
new content that's that's being made and becoming available to the festival that really, you know, audiences um, and people listening would would have trouble finding or even seeing in the cinema at least. So it's really amazing that we get to bring these these great films to to, to Melbourne audiences. Absolutely, and I'm sure that uh, the interest will come from all sorts of different directions. Of course, there's lots of people who will be interested in the environmental issues themselves, but I suspect also that young filmmakers or, or filmmakers of all ages, actually, might also be interested in uh, this festival and how it works and, and uh, as another place to voice their concerns about what's going on around them. Absolutely. Uh, I think that the festival isn't just for people that are tapped into environmental issues. It's absolutely for people that are interested in filmmaking or documentary filmmaking that are maybe environmentally curious, we like to say. So you've heard about something, but could I learn, could I learn more about it? Um, and, you know, people that are passionate about storytelling and great filmmaking. This, uh, I think we looked at around uh, over 500 hours of, of film and there was about 300 submissions of short films, 300 submissions of feature films. So we've really narrowed it down to some incredible films. So there's a lot to take uh, out of it for anyone that co- that comes along, not just environmentally minded people. Yeah. Now, how do people find out what, what's on and what you know, timings and so on? Yeah. So our full program is available on our website, which is www.effa.org.au. And our full program is available there and you can click through to the ACME or the uh, Palace West Scarf ticketing website to, to grab a ticket. Wonderful. Uh, I will put links on our Facebook page, of course, for our listeners if they would like to, an easy way to find that. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us today, Chris Gerber, uh, and congratulations on what sounds like a really fabulous festival. Thanks very much, and thanks a lot for having me. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye. And now it's time for John on. Ah, yes, it certainly is. I think perhaps I've mentioned some of this uh, in a, another one of these radio shows that we do. Uh, but uh, my brothers and I, my two brothers and I, uh, when we were quite young, were given recklessly given the recipe for gunpowder by my father. And my si- <gasps> Your father, yeah. knowing you as boys, gave you the recipe for gunpowder? He did. And uh, we managed to make some, quite a lot of it. <laughs> and uh, my younger brother who was six years old at the time, managed to make a bomb uh, with the gunpowder by getting a fistful of gunpowder and uh, wrapping it in paper mache till he had a ball about the size of a bowling ball. Uh, He painted it black. It had a wick coming out of the top of it. He painted it black and wrote bomb on the side with jagged lines around it. In case there was any doubt. I think he'd been watching too many cartoons. (laughs) The (laughs) roadrunner. My older brother lit the wick and uh, we were left standing there handing it between each other like the Three Stooges. You hold it. No, you hold it. No, why don't you hold it? Why are you holding it? Well, that became became clear that that was a stupid thing to be doing. Mm. So instead of holding it, we put it in the back of our mother's mini minor (laughs) and shut the tailgate. The car was parked in the driveway with the back of the car facing the street. And we backed away and there was a huge explosion and it blew the tailgate off the back of the car and over the road into Mrs. Bartaby's garden. Oh, God. And uh, Mrs. Bartaby uh, had a like an eight-foot-high cream brick 
fence with uh, broken bottles set in mortar around the top of it for decoration, presumably. <laughs> the light effects. <laughs> <laughs> and the fence had holes in it with cast iron grids in them. Uh, and beyond the grids were the two attacked Dobermans that lived in there and uh, that I generally... I spent some of my time over there infuriating them by running a stick up and down the fence, you know, and so they hated me, I hated them. (laughs) Mutually happy. (laughs) I was nonetheless given the task of going and retrieving the tailgate, and so I rang the doorbell, which infuriated the dogs even more, and the voice came out of the door, yes, who is it? And it was Mrs Bartaby, of course, and I said, oh, it's John from over the road. There's something in the front yard that I need to get. And uh, she said, oh, the gate's open, you know, the gate's not locked. And I thought, I'm not going in there, there's no way I'm going in there. So I went back across the road and we had a conference with my brothers. And Just a question, John, if, yeah. you're, if Andrew was six, you were eight or nine? Yeah, I was eight, Steve eight. was ten. Right. Um, and we had a conference about dealing with these dogs. Andrew's idea was to um, put some snail bait in some mint steak and throw it over the fence. <sighs> Snail bait. But he was only six years old, didn't understand that that wasn't going to kill the dogs quickly enough. <laughs> so I uh, I came up with a plan to get two buckets of water and take them, put them in the driveway and uh, open the gate and the dogs would come out and being dogs, they'd go straight to have a drink of water and we'd be able to plunge their heads into the water and drown them. <laughs> It was a kind of a reckless and stupid plan. And, uh, and naive. We were saved by the fact that we only had one bucket. <laughs> or the dogs were saved. But my brother Steve came up with the plan, with, uh, which was to get a, uh, a five-metre-long squid fishing pole with yeah. a loop of wire on the end of it that you could tighten from your end by pulling the wire in. And uh, he said, I'll get up on Mrs Bennett's pine tree and I'll get one of the dogs, I'll get one of the, the loop around one of the dog's necks and pull it really tight and kill it. And the other one will then <laughs> attack the dead dog and devour it, you know. Because that's what dogs and do. He, yeah. And he said, by the time the surviving dogs devoured the dead one, it'll be docile for enough for you to go into the yard, John. <laughs> <laughs> How fabulous. But uh, we didn't have time to do that. We wanted to get things cleared up before uh, our parents got home because we thought if we get the tailgate back on the mini miner, just put it there, no one would really notice that anything had happened. You know? How did that go for you? Well, we had to get the tailgate first. Oh. So I went back over the road and um, I said with a more pleading sort of voice, I said, Mrs Bartaby, there's something of mum's in your front yard and I'm scared of your dog's. And she said, oh, okay, look, I'll put the dogs inside and then, you know, Remus, Romulus, inside, you know. And uh, so they went inside and I went into the garden with Mrs Bartaby and there's this kind of thing on the lawn looking a bit like something from Skylab, you know. In fact, part of my plan was to tell her that we'd made a deal with NASA that they could land some of their (laughs) Mercury rocket in our yard and that they'd obviously missed. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't do that. Uh, I said to her, Mrs. Barterby, uh, this is, that's the, that's the tailgate off mum's car. 
And she said, oh, what's it doing there? And I said, well, it blew off. And she said, it blew off, really? <laughs> it's interesting. What kind of car is it? And I said, it's a mini minor. And she said, oh, okay. So as I'm leaving the gate, out, walking out the gate with the tailgate, she said, well, I've got a Holden, and I don't think that's going to happen to the Holden. And I thought as I crossed the road, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. How did you get away with it? What did you... Uh, my mother was trouble. mortified. Oh, she was horrified and completely and absolutely beside herself with anger. Yeah. My father was astounded that we'd managed to manifest such a massive blast. And uh, we were all okay because no one was hurt. Our theory was that if no one was hurt, it was all right. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> we were constantly being told, you know, stop doing that, someone will get hurt. Yeah. Or, if it was my uncle, it was stop doing that or you'll knock someone's bloody eye out. Mm. And given that no one had had their eye knocked out, we thought we'd... You got away with it. Yeah. Well, well look, it, it is interesting, John, when you think about how we used to have those penny bungers and, oh, you know, yeah. in, in Guy, and how your know, kids were going around streets... With sticks of dynamite. With sticks of dynamite in their hands and, and blowing up letterboxes. Well, and, when and I was about 19, Michael Bladen and I ah, made... Michael Bladen. <laughs> yes. Michael Bladen and I made a Somewhat bomb... Somewhat of an expert in the field. ...for Dave Rain's 21st birthday. Right. Um, and we used a big 16mm film can and Michael Bladen made gunpowder out of right. various ingredients. Had the recipe. Yeah, he had the recipe for it as well. Mm. And uh, we presented it to David uh, at somewhere at a birthday party in Mount Martha, actually, and lit the fuse, which we had made from sticky tape, mm. and almost blew our own heads off. Yeah. Yeah. It's very it was dangerous activity. Mm. Very dangerous. Yeah. And the most interesting aspect of all this is the fact that the Chinese invented gunpowder, but only used it for fireworks. Right. It wasn't until the English... Or the French started making uh, um, bullets. I think that's not quite true. The Chinese did have cannons. Yeah, but not in the beginning. They had for a very long time. They had gun gunpowder only for fireworks, right. which is for um, decoration. Well, yeah, for the for mm. celebration. There's a second part to that story, which I'll save for another time. Good to do with the okay. uh, transformer that produced lighting for the suburb. And my big question is, why would you put a bomb in the back of a Mini? We couldn't think of anywhere else to put it. It was about mm. to blow up. Oh, here we go. Modest Mazorski. Mm. Not quite exactly the piece, but it's close to it. Pictures of an exhibition. Slightly strange version. Uh, yes. Do, you, but, want, do no, you want me to get the right version? No, no, that's fine. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, do you want me to keep playing it? Oh no, that can go. We can right. get into into his life story. I think most people would know, know it. Yes. Probably know it through Emerson, Lake and Palmer as well. It was written, in fact, for a painter called Victor Hartmann, okay. who had died of an aneurysm at the age of thirty-nine. Right. And he was a close friend of Mussorgsky's, um, and they had an exhibition where they put four hundred of his paintings in to try and help well, his wife and kids. Well, he was prolific. He was prolific. What, what, what was his life? Span, when was he? Mussorgsky was yes. a, uh, born 21st of March 1839. 1839. And died on 28th of March 1881. Right. Aged 42. Yes. Um, he was a Russian composer, one of a group known as the Five, um, which included César Louis, Alexandra Borodin, who you might have known, mm. Mili uh, Balkirov, and Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Mm. 
and Pussy Riot. He was an <laughs> innovator of Russian music in the Romantic period and strove to achieve a uniquely Russian musical identity, often in deliberate defiance of the established conventions of Western music. Yeah. That was what he was about. Well, the Russians often have that attitude about art and music that, you know, this is Russia and we're going to be different from... Yeah, the, well, the they, and they do it, and they, they're successful quite often. Most of his works were inspired by Russian it's history. insecurity, really. Do you think? Yeah. No, I'm sure they disagree. And folklore, including the opera Boris Godunov, the arc, uh, the orchestral tone poem Night on Bald Mountain, which if you've never listened to is worth listening. It's the most beautiful piece of music. And the piano suite pictures of an exhibition, later mm. orchestrated, orchestrated famously by Maurice Ravel. So and he called it this um, music for an exhibition, is that correct? Or what? Pictures, pictures for, for an yeah, exhibition. Yeah, a suite. It's a piano suite. So it was right. originally written just for piano. Right. And it's describing the exhibition. He wrote it after after the exhibition, obviously. Uh-huh. It is also oddly, and this is true of a, a lot of music of that period, I reckon, uh, it is almost perfect cinema music, cinematic music, uh, written well before films were even being made. Yeah, I, I've, that's a really moot question for me because I find most film music just absolutely unbearable. Right. But when they do take music which is already composed and put it into the music, it does work better. I well, think. that's what I'm saying. That is what you're saying. But then it all, also, it, it, uh, unfortunately, it's like that film, that horrible film they made in, in America with the um, Ravel's Bolero. Oh, yeah. And everybody's saying, you know, Bolero. Ten. And they, and you, you, ten, exactly. It was just you know, a horrible end for a, a magnificent piece of music. I mean, anyway, but I'm a bit of a snob in that area. Perhaps not only. His wealthy land-owning noble family lived about 400 k south of St. Petersburg. He received lessons from his beautiful trained pianist mother at an early age and moved to St. Petersburg, age 10, to continue his studies. At 17, he became friends with Borodin at military school, who described him thus. His little uniform was spick and span, hair smoothed down, hands well-groomed like a lord's. His manners were elegant and aristocratic. His speech delivered through somewhat clenched teeth, interspersed with French phrases, rather precious. His politeness was exceptional. The ladies made a fuss of him. Uh, He sat at the piano and played with extreme sweetness and grace. Somewhat of a flaneur. A little bit. He, by the age of 23, he had left the army and was living in St. Petersburg as a low-grade civil servant and living in a six-man commune, a heady artistic and intellectual atmosphere where he read and, and discussed a wide range of modern ideas and came to embrace the idea of artistic realism and all that it entailed, which is in relation to what you're saying. Um, He's saying that um, he he rejected the repeating symmetrical musical forms as insufficiently true to the unrepeating, unpredictable course of real life, okay, right. which meant a hell of a lot of drinking. When his beautiful mother died, I don't died, think it only meant that. Uh, well, a lot of drinking was going on, but it, no, it's true. He was he, it was the idea of culture as being based on the people and not on the on you know, on the bourgeois, yes, which is was going on in Paris at the same yeah. time, really, and is what we experienced in the sixties and seventies was you know, it was a counterculture. That was the idea. A lot of drinking going on there as well, and drugs. When his beautiful mother died in 1865, Modest suffered his first bout with alcoholism. By 1874, when Boris Gudunov was well-received, Modest was already in decline. The five had generated into soulless traitors. He was drinking himself to oblivion and having fits of madness, many of his friends either dead or very unwell. 
alcoholism was a behavior pattern considered typical for those of Mussorgsky's generation as a way to oppose the establishment and protest through forms, extreme forms of behavior. Now, you know, this has been going on for a long time. It's why Plato, um, yeah, Plato wanted to, to ban the poets because of the, all their madness. There are canons in Boris Goodenough, you know. There are canons in Boris Goodenough. Gunpowder. Yeah, lots of gunpowder. Anyway, he spent days and nights in the St. Petersburg Tatavan of low repute, the Mali Yaroslavets, accompanied by other Bohemian dropouts. They idolized their alcoholism, alcoholism, seeing it as the ethical and aesthetic opposition. Mm. There is a famous painting by Ilya uh, Repens, a portrait of Modest, painted two days before his death mm-hmm. for modesty. Yeah, you look a little sick. Where he sits resolute, red nose, and ready to go. <laughs> uh, did he die of uh, alcoholism, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm. I mean, the Russian, the, the life expectancy for Russians, I think it's um, like Scotland. It's, bit, you know, it's like 67. Because the men just smoke and drink themselves to death. It's the idea of... Was Scotland really low too? I was just told that this morning. Scotland's considered the sick, sick man of now? Europe. Now? Yeah. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. And uh, Russia's got huge problem, demographic problems because the people die so young. And, and um, They do drink they extraordinarily. Drink do you think that's the same thing to do with the Scots? Ah, uh, well, they're famous for it, aren't they? Yeah, the yeah. Scottish are known for having a drink, that's for sure. And also just a, a, unfortunate, it seems like an unhealthy lifestyle. But so are the Australians. The Australians are known for having a drink. Well, very but much we so. have a very good medical system. We do. That's true, John. You can speak for that. But the I think the big difference when when I went to France, I couldn't believe that when they'd open the bottle of wine, they'd cork it halfway through. Yeah. You just have a glass with your meal, and that was it. So they didn't mm. drink to get drunk. And it I was had a, lunch with a family in France uh, where they opened a bottle of wine and I've got a couple of bottles of wine. They had a glass each, and they started putting the cork back in one of them. And I said, well, just leave the cork out of that. I'll drink that. And they sat there and they watched me drink a bottle of wine out of curiosity. <laughs> See yeah. what would happen to me. Yeah, yeah. For them, it's um, it, it, you really don't yes. drink to get drunk. No. So there you go. Well, that's fabulous. I think. Don't um, forget Mussorgsky. No, Night don't on, forget Mussorgsky. Night yes. on Bald Mountain. It's a magnificent piece of yeah. music. Okay, I have to have a listen now, to something. Now, I, I did want to speak about Tonga again. Yes, I'm, go on. I, yes, we've got one minute. Okay. All right. Well, look, Tonga has been more or less culturally unified for over one thousand years, and is the only island group in the Pacific that has never been colonized by a foreign power. Okay, never. It comprises 169 islands, 36 of which are hab- inhabited. In Tonga, I've said this before, but I repeat it, the word in Tongan, the word Tonga comes from Fakatonga, mm. which means southwards. They decided to drop the Faka. Mm. When Cook, Captain Cook, arrived in 1774, Paolo, the Tongan chief, was not impressed. He only had two boats, whereas Cook only had two boats, whereas he, Paolo, had hundreds of 30-metre-long canoes packed to the gills with warriors demonstrating in graphic detail what gruesome fate awaited Cook's men. They did a lot of mooning until they got some well-aimed buckshot into their bums. When Cook refused two beautiful young Tongan girls offered in peace, Paolo was incensed, calling him all matter of names reflecting on his manhood. When they learned he was just a commoner who had risen through the ranks, he was consigned to the lowest rungs of the social ladder which meant he had no soul, as only chieftains and nobility had souls and, and ascended to the afterlife, everybody else turned to dust. Ah, well, that's, what we, that's just generally what happens, I think, isn't it? <laughs> he the king of Tonga went to England, as it turns out, at one stage, and uh, came back to Tonga saying that he thought the English were thin. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not worth eating. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, you've missed Arts About, but you can hear the repeat on Wednesdays at 12 or listen to the podcasts that are on the station website or from our Facebook page. You can listen to us on air, streaming from the station website or the RPP phone app. And we also have a Wooshka podcast address you can find by checking into our Facebook page. As I said, we'll be on again same time next week, 11 o'clock Sundays. And remember, everybody, we may not know everything about art. We know a little bit about gunpowder, Mark. Yes, and no sex this week. No. Notice. Been Uh, good. Yeah, very good. Full marks.